Previously on the British Broadcasting Century. Before our summer specials, we left you in February of 1923, when Captain Peter Pendleton Eckersley had just joined as chief engineer of the BBC. Immediately, he took an interest in enhancing the local stations, that is London, Birmingham, Manchester, Newcastle, and time for a fifth station? This time, Wales gets its own BBC radio station one month before Scotland does. Cardiff 5WA, the tale of that station and its launch in February of 1923. Also, it's the centenary, of course, coming up. So there are places, exhibitions, museums that you can visit this autumn. We will speak to curators of several fine exhibitions and initiatives, including Lewis Pollard from Bradford Science and Media Museum. What not a lot of people know is we hold the BBC Heritage Collection which is about a thousand objects which were donated to us by the BBC 10 years ago this year, actually, strangely enough. Um, and that includes things like early microphones and cameras, which we've got on display, as well as like props and uh, on-screen icons that people will be familiar with. In the exhibition, we've got the likes of Muffin the Mule and Bill and Ben the Flowerpot Men. And Bob Richardson, whose skip-diving exploits has results in a kingdom of cardboard in central London. I used to live in a, a, a bedsit on Lime Grove behind Television Centre. And the very first week I was there, I was leaving via the, the scenery dock. And there was a huge polystyrene map of the UK, which was being used for a programme called Praise B. It was a sort of Songs of Praise Greatest Hits presented by Thora Heard. And it was a, a glorious piece of 3D sculpture made in polystyrene. But for every cathedral in the UK, there was a, an exquisite little watercolour. And as Thora Heard did the links to various um, hymns, the camera zoomed in on those, those individual paintings. Next day, I saw it in a skip at the back of the building, oh. broken in two. It, it, its time was, was over. It had been used. The program was in the can, and it was just a, a piece of television detritus. So I climbed into the skip, and I peeled off all the little watercolours, which had been beautifully done by a graphic designer, um, and I pasted them into an album. And that was the start, really. Um, those skips were a, a rich source of material for the next 35 years or so. Yes, in 1923, it's Wales, and in 2022, it's the Exhibitionists, if we can call them such a thing. As we begin season four, they said it would never last, of the British Broadcasting Century. This is London College. Hello, hello. This is the British Broadcasting Century. You're welcome to it in the kindest of ways. It's a new series, I've decided. It's a very arbitrary thing. It all sort of blends into the next one, doesn't it? But I'm declaring this the commencement of season four of the British Broadcasting Century podcast. So if you've just joined us, a perfect place to begin, although an equally perfect place to begin would be, you know, at the very start. Uh, essentially, season one took us up until the very start of the BBC. Season two then spanned several episodes, which really brought us from November the 14th, 22, when the BBC started, to the end of 1922 and New Year's Eve. Uh, then uh, season three, I guess, brought us from New Year's Day of 1923 until the end of January. And in that time, we had the first outside broadcast. We had the first female employee in Isabel Shields. And we had Peter Eckersley joining as chief engineer, lured in by the sounds of the opera, or should I say the sounds before the opera, the conductor with his baton, the sound of the audience. It convinced him to close 2MT Riddle, the rival to the BBC, and join the Beeb itself. 
More recently, we've had our summer specials, which whizzed forward ahead to Hilda Matheson, World War II Broadcasting, and the earliest Black British broadcasters. Thank you to our fabulous guests who joined us for that. Sarah Jane Stratford, Stephen Bourne, Edward Sturton, David Hendy, Tim Wonder, for their role in the last few episodes. The thing is, I'm discovering this whole British broadcasting history malarkey increasingly more complex than I thought. You see, I have just been at the BBC at 100 Symposium in Bradford. You'll hear more about the fine museum that took place at this episode. On the way to it, driving up, I just finished editing the two most recent episodes you've heard on the BBC in World War II and on radio propaganda in World War II. And I'd separated those two out. I got to the symposium. The very first session I heard included uh, Simon Potter, I think it was, on how the BBC is so often wrongly thought to have avoided propaganda in World War II, when no, it's all propaganda, and we should acknowledge it as such. So that sort of corrected the previous two episodes that I'd just done, even though Simon Potter, as far as I'm aware, had never heard it. But quite the coincidence. It turns out, you know, you scratch a little bit of the surface here on the British broadcasting history, or so much more to discover. That little reminder that actually it's all propaganda was then also brought home by, and I mean this in the most respectful of ways, but the recent coverage of Her Late Majesty, 10 days of national mourning, and how that affected the uh, the programme schedules. That's our, of course, interest here on this particular show. No denying a very moving funeral and seen by five billion people i think it was around the world and all of those who made that broadcast possible not just on the bbc but every other channel i'm astounded amazed and impressed we could unpack that till the cows come home but the power of broadcasting bringing this once in a lifetime state funeral to half the planet wow but anyway it's all positive propaganda isn't it of a sort it's what we use broadcasting for especially when we have royals and we have dignitaries and we have a message to send to the planet anyway back at that symposium i want to give a shout out to media historians that i met there i have no idea if they will listen are listening or will ever get to this podcast but kate lacey sean nicholas jamie medhurst joe henderson tasha kitcher Gene Seaton, Robert Seater as well, the BBC Head of History. I hope to lure many of them onto this podcast, all experts in their own right. That symposium was wonderfully organised by Marcus Collins of Loughborough University. It was a great chance also for me to meet in the flesh some podcast listeners and contributors for the first time. Andrew Barker, our newspaper detective. Great to meet you, Andrew. Martin Cooper as well, who we're hoping to lure onto the podcast at some point to talk about his book on BBC and popular culture. Eddie Bowen from Irish Pirate Radio Audio Archive. Hello, Eddie. Great to meet you. And thanks, Eddie Bowen, for the book. He's written Rebel Radio, Ireland's first international radio station, 1916. We'll get him on to tell us the tale when we can. Kate Murphy and Andrea Smith again. Both wonderful contributors to the podcast. You've heard Kate previously talking about uh, early women at the BBC. We'll have more from her when Women's Hour kicks in. Dr Andrea Smith we'll be having next time on Early Shakespeare at the BBC. And indeed, she's helped with this episode on the first Welsh station. So to this episode then. The centenary is around the corner. We will celebrate it in our own way here on the podcast with some centenary specials soon. If you want to be involved, record me a voice memo about a moment of broadcasting history. Email me the clip. You can be on the podcast. But this episode, yeah, I want to tell you what's on. Places you can go. Interviews with curators and exhibitionists, I'm going to call them, if that's the right word. It isn't. On exhibitions and museums that you can and you should visit if you are especially near London or Bradford or Manchester. So I am going to bring you all those. But also at the symposium, chatting to listeners in person, it was clear to me that some of you are missing our regular timeline on this slow step-by-step tale of British broadcasting. 
So I want to include that as well. It may make for a long episode, but tough. We'll rattle through it. So expect two split tales this episode then. Present day interviews about exhibitions that you can visit. But first, to 1923 and to Cardiff. Very shortly, the new signal, 5WA, will be radiated from Cardiff Broadcasting Station on a wavelength of 395 metres. From Popular Wireless, 3rd of February 1923. Doubtless the event will produce in listeners into the first call a feeling of excitement such as astronomers must experience when a new star swims within their view. So where are we in the timeline then? Let's give it some context. A few episodes ago, uh, we left the BBC with Peter Eckersley joining the London HQ of the Beeb as chief and only engineer at the start of February 1923. A couple of other things from that era then. Here's a thing I've just found in a dusty old book. 6th of February 1923, the Ghana Schofield Band become the first dance band to broadcast live in Britain. That's on 2ZY in Manchester. Very popular band, along with the uh, the Don Haydn Quartet. There you go, the first dance band on the air. We'll have more on dance bands in a future episode when we get to the Savoy Orpheans. That will be a lot of fun. Three days later, February the 9th, 1923, you get the first talk on music by Percy Scholes on the London Broadcast Station. Three days after that, you get also in London the first theatre OB of a pantomime. Now, the OBs, of course, went all through January for the opera season from the Opera House. This is from the London Hippodrome, and it's Cinderella. We'll give you a bit more on that and other early radio drama next episode with Dr Andrea Smith. But for now, we head west to Cardiff, as we read in the papers of the day, gathered for us by newspaper detective Andrew Barker. Western Mail, 3rd of February 1923. Mr Arthur R. Burroughs having returned to London, Mr R. E. Palmer has arrived at Cardiff from head office to take charge of the concert studio of the British Broadcasting Company until Mr Fred Roberts, who has been appointed musical director, takes over the duties. Guess how long Fred Roberts lasts as station director. Go on, guess. I'll tell you later. Clue, not long. As for the launch of Cardiff WA then, our old friend Arthur Burroughs was there as well. He'd actually been there for quite some time, setting up the station. And you often get this in the early days. The local stations popping up here, there and everywhere, what they would often do is they would send people from head office. Arthur Burroughs was one of them there for the launch. Well, that's where they were all heading from BBC HQ. You've got John Reith heading from London to Cardiff, along with Lord Gainford, and Sir William Noble, the great and the good of British Broadcasting's people in charge. Broadcasting at Cardiff, new station to be opened today. Hello CQ, hello all, hello everybody. This salutation will today herald the inauguration of the Cardiff Broadcasting Station. The announcer, standing in front of a suspended microphone, will feel conscious of a large invisible audience. The commencement of broadcasting from a new centre is an event in the wireless world and the first call from Cardiff is eagerly awaited by listeners in. Hitherto, people have had to go to their entertainment. Wireless broadcasting brings their entertainment to them. The opening of Cardiff Station has been awaited with eagerness. Aerials are to be seen springing up at the rear of houses in districts where one would hardly expect to find them. And on February the 13th, they gathered for the opening ceremony at 19 Castle Street. That was the first studio of Welsh Broadcasting, just near Cardiff Castle. It was the grandest opening yet, now that Wreath was involved. Much publicity about the opening, but the studio was in a rotten place. 
you know, offices over a cinema. It moved to Park Place in May of 1924, but as Arthur Burroughs noted, every inch of office space within reasonable distance of the station and hotels appeared to be occupied. We were compelled to accept a cramped but convenient site over a cinema opposite the castle. The studio was just large enough to permit the swinging of the proverbial cat. Its windows faced the road, and no amount of shuttering proved sufficient to cut out the rumbling noises of trams passing below. This was the first station opened under Wreath, of course. Although he did put in a brief appearance, a cameo, if you will, at the very start of Newcastle. That was technically his first job when he joined the BBC, was to swing via Newcastle 5NO, see how they were getting on. But he was here for the planning of Cardiff 5WA. Reith wanted to make a splash, a thing of it. Radio commences at Cardiff, the opening ceremony. Number 5WA is a reality. The speeches of the opening were preceded by a few words from Mr JCW Reith, the general manager of the British Broadcasting Company, who said, Hello, 5WA, the Cardiff station of the British Broadcasting Company calling. This is the general manager of the company talking, and I'm just going to make way in a moment for Lord Gainford, our chairman. I'm speaking now into an ordinary telephone transmitter. There are eight telephone transmitters here now, but shortly we'll be installing one of the new microphones, which will do the work of the eight. Now, in this studio, at first, it was eight telephone-type microphones hanging from the ceiling, so they would all be on at the same time and gather the noise generally from the room. By mid-February, Peel-Connor microphones had all gone. Round coil microphones were coming in. These were huge, and the artists hated them. And if you can hear all right now, you can take it from me that you will hear better later. The transmission will be very much improved. More of that tale shortly, but from Cardiff in 1923 to Bradford in 2022. Delighted to welcome to the podcast now, uh, curator of television and broadcast at the National Science and Media Museum in Bradford. I believe that's your correct title, but correct me if I'm wrong. Lewis Pollard. Thank you for having me. Yeah, that's correct. So what sort of things can people expect if they come to Bradford uh, for the exhibition? So the way that we've approached um, Switched On is we've tried to have three key themes. There's technology, which is where we get a lot of our collections because we have uh, very rich collections in terms of broadcasting technology. Uh, The second key theme is people. And for that, we've picked out 14 key pioneers in the last 100 years of broadcasting who have forced the industry to Uh, adapt to improve and to make room for more and more voices and then the third theme is society and that is both how society is affected by broadcast but also how society can affect broadcast and how how we can be continually evolving to bring broadcast up to higher standards but also showing how broadcast can bring the whole world to us and open us up to new ideas it's a great idea behind the heart of it then and uh and those little those different areas so it's a temporary exhibition it's on until i think early next year is that right maybe just after christmas yeah that's right so get there while you can and what sort of people walk in what sort of things do they see then is it exhibits on display is it hands-on sort of stuff yeah so we have a lot of amazing objects from our collections and but the exhibition is very hands-on as well so we have interactives around subtitling so seeing all the work that goes into that um We do have uh, a nice interactive around spotting fake videos and trying to increase media literacy that way. And there's also stuff around pirate radio and designing your own pirate radio station on gallery. I was looking at the marvellous digitised, the BBC Heritage items. And obviously on this podcast, I'm particularly, uh, for now, uh, geeky about the very early days and seeing some of these items in, in 
in more detail the meat safe microphone stand from savoy hill 1923 some of those really early microphones even before the iconic sort of marconi microphone uh you've got some marvelous stuff there so it must be great to uh, be able to show them off a bit yeah absolutely and yeah we do have um the microphone from the meat safe on display in a collection of early microphones to talk a bit about those difficulties in the early days of picking up voices and how you managed to do outside broadcasts but we do also include like the iconic axbt microphone and that we put next to one of our pioneers, which is Ahmad Kamal Surat Effendi. And he is the first person to do a non-English BBC service. He did it in Arabic in 1938. And we put him in there because it's really paving the way for the BBC being a more worldwide service and reflecting the listeners across the world and opening up to more and more languages and how we get to the BBC being um, the big world service that it is today. And as I record this podcast, I hear news that the BBC World Service is actually to downsize somewhat. And that includes cutting, after 84 years, that notable first foreign language service, the BBC Arabic service, will now cease as a broadcast service. But may it continue online and looking back to those pioneers who started it in 1938. Incredible. One of the hardest parts of working on this exhibition was deciding what we could include because uh, there's so many amazing things and so many amazing stories and the exhibition doesn't end just here so whilst we have the large exhibition in Bradford we are part of the Science Museum group and across the group this year there are other exhibitions and celebrations um, over our Science and Industry Museum in Manchester we've got a display that's talking about the BBC in Manchester and Manchester's first radio station Radio 2ZY which is a really fantastic like local story that's really significant in Manchester history there is a radio valve in that display, um, which is, I think, as far as we're aware, the only surviving piece of the original 2ZY apparatus. Uh, I'm quite fond of that display because it's something that I worked on um, last year. So oh, it's great. it's near and dear to my heart. Um, over at the Science Museum in London, we've got a few key objects from the history of the BBC for our London audiences, uh, including a Cyberman from the 19, late 1980s um, Doctor Who serial, The Silver Menace. And there's obviously all the stuff that's happening online. And then there are loads and loads of events. Um, we had a one of our late evenings at the Science Museum recently. There's another one in Bradford in October. So there's absolutely all sorts going on throughout the year to celebrate. And that is a good way for us to be promoting some of the things that we couldn't fit on gallery because there were just too many amazing things. More from Lewis in a bit. And I must say, I went to the Science and Media Museum a week or two ago, and I had a great time. I was there for the symposium, but while there, I had a little tour, saw their switched-on exhibition. It's a marvel, the stuff they've got there. Loads of stuff from childhood, loads of great stuff from kids' TV, and loads of just great interactive hands-on things. It's a treat for all the family. I highly recommend it. We'll have the link in the show notes to where you can go online and see more details of going in person, but also you can go online and see those thousand digitised items from the BBC archives that Lewis was talking about. Now, elsewhere, maybe you are in the southeast. Maybe you're within reach of London and fancy getting along to St Bride's, which is uh, uh, linked with the Exhibition Centre. And they have a very small little library there. And Bob Richardson there is the curator, but he's formerly of BBC Presentations and BBC Exhibitions. And he's done over the last several decades a lot of skip diving. A Kingdom of Cardboard. It's on until the end of the year. It's quite near Blackfriars, just there on the Thames. I've been. I loved it. This is Bob Richardson. While I was in the presentation department, I applied for a job in the exhibitions department. And in those days, they had a system called uh, the attachments. 
to uh, other departments. You could try out a job in a different department for three months or six months, which is what I did with exhibitions. I went back to prayers uh, and I ended up getting a full-time job in the exhibitions unit uh, and then moved on to graphic design department. It, it was always my intention when I first joined the BBC to, to try and become a graphic designer, but because I was an art teacher, um, that wasn't considered to be a, an acceptable qualification. So I ended up as a, a graphic assistant, which I did for almost 30 years. Wow. And there, there is a, a theme, having seen this marvellous exhibition at, at St Bride Library in London, which is, we should say, is, is uh, potentially an extended run on to the end of the year. Maybe we, we yeah. will see. Um, but there's a, a, the running theme of graphic design seems to be through, there's some wonderful um, examples there, aren't there, that you've uh, displayed for us there. Um, yeah. Any particular favourites for you or what, what's the... Uh... Oh, my, my number one favourite, it doesn't actually belong to me, and that is the Classified Football Results Board from Grandstand. Mm. Um, sport used a subcontractor called Wormser Aids. Uh, Alfred Wormser was a, an Austrian Jew who came to London 1938. He set up a company producing freelance graphic design um, models, props, all sorts of stuff. And because his, his base in Goldhawk Road was five minutes walk from Lime Grove, he found um, dozens of producers who wanted to use his services. At the time, the BBC didn't have a graphic design department. And so Alfred really was BBC Graphics. And the company continued working, particularly with BBC Sport, for another 50 years or so. And in fact, some of the stuff in the background is on loan from um, the company. They no longer trade, but the managing director, John Tidy, like myself, um, couldn't bear to see some of these pieces thrown away in, in, in a skip or into a bin. So he put them in his garage. But the classified board is, is my favourite. More so for the, the back of it. The graphic design worked very well indeed, and, and thanks to the BBC Vision Engineers, it always looked pristine on screen. Any little daubs of, of repainting could be um, removed by what they call racking, by changing the, the contrast of the image. So they looked fantastic on screen. They weren't so good close up, but the back of that classified board is a mare's nest of plastic strips and tapes. And of course, you're looking at the away team on the left-hand side when you're trying to update the scores. So there are all sorts of little warnings telling people this is the away side. Don't give the goal to the away side. Um, and then you have to pull a strip. And these plastic strips had um, zero, one, two, three, four, up to about nine, I think. I don't think it went to 10. But then it also had L for late kickoff, uh, P for postponed, A for abandoned, um, E for evening kickoff. And they were all just tugged through by a man behind the, the set who had to make sure that he pulled it in the right direction. They never got it wrong. They were incredibly good at what they did. It, it does feel like a peek behind the curtain, the Wizard of Oz style, to sort of mm. all these things we've seen, the classified results there, um, and some of the 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 idents as well, like the BBC Two uh, cube. Yeah. It's a three-dimensional. Yeah. It was amazing. I've seen it countless times on TV, and to see it there in person, a thing that is a thing that is filmed, and I don't think I'd appreciated that these are things that have been have been, you know, you fire a camera at it. It's very small as well, the BBC Two ident, and, and that was destined for a skip. I mean, that really was diving into a, a skip to retrieve it. Um, all of the models for BBC One and BBC Two, when they were retired and replaced by electronic equivalents, they were stored on a very high shelf in the presentation control um, admin office. And one of the editors there, a man called Peter Francis, rang me when I was in the exhibitions unit and said, we're a bit concerned they might fall and kill somebody. So would you like them for BBC exhibitions? Well, I cleared it with my boss, Lorne Martin, who said, yeah, OK, we'll take them. I don't know what we're going to do with them, but we'll take them. So we took the models, excluding the spinning world, 
Um, that was considered to be much too precious to, to lose track of. Um, but we got the school's animated diamond, um, which was used to introduce schools programs. We got the BBC Two Cube um, and a few other bits and pieces. I can't remember exactly how many, but I think there were four or five models. They went off to our exhibition store in North Acton, where they sat on a shelf there for about three years. And because it was a very small warehouse and we were doing lots of exhibitions, um, we were still recycling costumes from the six wives of Henry VIII and Elizabeth R. But we had a huge quantity of material from Doctor Who. Um, we had a, a, an enormous spaceship from the flip side of Dominic Hyde. We had a facsimile of the Bluebird um, land speed record car. Uh, and they took up so much space that got to the point where my boss said, we just have to get rid of some junk. We've got to get rid of some of this stuff. We, we've got a load more material coming in. And the BBC symbols were a casualty of that clear out. And they were thrown into a skip. And I went back at the end of the working day with a key, which I had access to, and I, I fished out the BBC Two symbol. Wow. So I guess you couldn't just um, say, let's not put it in the skip. I'll take, I'll, I'll, I'll put that in the car. You've got to also come back um, at the end of the day, I guess, and sort it. You know, at the time when we were throwing stuff into the skip, it, it, it didn't really cross my mind that it was something that needed mm. to be preserved. And it was only, I think, later in the day when I was sitting at home and I thought, gosh, that was really an important part of, of my childhood. Um, and it's languishing in a skip in North Acton. So I put my jacket on and went back. Uh, yeah. Got the key from but the, the keys used to be kept in the reception area of the old BBC rehearsal rooms. So I just signed out the keys, went along and retrieved it. I wish now that I could have got the whole unit. In fact, it was extremely heavy and I was traveling on the tube. It was in a metal box which had the motor underneath. So the display you, you see at St. Bride, um, the, the box it sits in is the right size, but it's a mock up. You mentioned the globes as well. What's do you know? Do we know what's happened? You said that the, you know the spinning globes seems to be too yeah. precious. Where, where are these things now then? Well, in fact, some of them were recycled when the BBC revamped the presentation style of, of BBC One. Um, the globe was kept. They changed the colours by tweaking it electronically, and they put a new typeface, a sort of striped typeface with the BBC One legend. Um, again, I was in the right place at the right time when the BBC One Futura. Um, legend, the, 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 the letters BBC One underneath the symbol. When that was retired and upgraded, I was in the presentation studio when the engineer came along to do that. And he came in with a strip of acetate, which had BBC One on it, and, and plonked it in a bin uh, because he was putting the new um, logo on there. And I said, can I have it? And he said, yeah, if you want. It's, it's rubbish. It's yours. So the BBC One acetate strip that you see in the, in the display at St. Bride is the original, which was used on air, um, I think, for about seven years. But the symbols themselves, there were just so many of them because every BBC region and every nation had one. And I think there were probably at least a dozen, maybe 15 dotted around the UK. Um, some regions still have them. If you go to BBC Belfast, I believe theirs is still in the reception area and you can see it. Um, one of them was turned into a sort of coin-operated money box and that sat in the office of um, the head of presentation. And if you put 50 pence into it, uh, it would do out of 12 for about two or three minutes. <laughs> and I think that money went towards the presentation Christmas party. Oh, that's nice. But that was mechanised by a BBC graphic, uh, sorry, a visual effects designer, a man called Tony Oxley, who was an absolute genius. Uh, he could animate anything. He did the animated Daleks for the Doctor Who exhibitions. Uh, and that was his forte, really, to um, to produce animated models of all kinds. 
Uh, he made a model for us when when Lord Bath, because we had a Doctor Who exhibition at uh, Longleat House, when Lord Bath was, I think, 70, maybe 75, um, he was a huge Doctor Who fan, as well as hosting the exhibition. And so Tony Oxley made a birthday cake, <clears throat> a birthday cake for Lord Bath, which was rather like the music box at the beginning of Camberwick Green or Trumpton, where the slices open and a figure of Tom Baker came out and twirled. And that was made by Tony, um, paid for by BBC Enterprises and pre uh, presented to Lord Bath, who absolutely loved it. We'll have more from Bob Richardson on our 100 Years in 100 Minutes centenary special in a few episodes time. Or you can catch our full conversation now on our Patreon page. Link in the show notes and that all helps support this podcast, of course. We thank you for it. But let's return to February the 13th, 1923 and the launch night of Cardiff, where the speeches are still underway. Lord Gainford then took his stand at the transmitter and said, As chairman of the British Broadcasting Company, I've been given a message by a very distinguished Welshman, which I am now going to convey to you. Following is the message. It is with great satisfaction that I learn of the opening of the wireless station in Cardiff. I am following with the greatest interest the development of this marvellous discovery, and I'm glad that Wales is taking part in and benefiting by the progress that is being made in this direction. David Lloyd George. I am now speaking again as Lord Gainford, chairman of the British Broadcasting Company. This is the fifth station which has been erected by the company. On behalf of my co-directors, I desire to take this opportunity of congratulating the people of Wales and the surrounding area on the pleasure and information they may be given through this broadcasting transmitting station. More than any other early station launch, we know exactly what was said that night because word for word, the speeches were printed in the Western Mail. We'll post the full article on our Facebook group, but it wasn't all celebratory. Lord Gainford even used his speech to have a pop at the government and their attitude to broadcasting. May I now give you an illustration of one of our disappointments? Today, the King's speech was delivered from the throne in the House of Lords by the King himself to Parliament, and therefore to all his subjects. During the last few weeks, the Broadcasting Company have been endeavouring to secure permission to place in a concealed position a transmitter in the House of Lords, with a view to the King's speech being conveyed to every broadcasting station throughout the country. The speech in the King's own words would have been heard by many thousands of His Majesty's subjects, who would have heard the King's voice, and who would never have the opportunity of hearing the speech read from the throne in the House of Lords. To the broadcasting company, there seemed no reason why the necessary consent should not be given. But the government, for reasons known to themselves, have turned down a suggestion. And it is only by the public making their views on this point known to their representatives in Parliament that ministers will come to realise that wireless broadcasting should be encouraged. Wireless messages may be made the means of disseminating information of great value and interest to the community. And I'm hoping that the government may soon interest themselves. I have to thank you for the attention which you have now given me. I trust that throughout the Principality, the programmes which will be provided by the Broadcasting Company and which will be transmitted from this station may be increasingly enjoyed by the people of Wales. I'm now going to ask Sir William Noble, another director of the company, to introduce you to the Lord Mayor of Cardiff. And Sir William Noble. Ladies and gentlemen of my unseen audience, broadcasting has given us some new experiences. Let me give you one example. 
Some three months ago, there was a unique demonstration of mixed ordinary wire telephony, which is known as wired wireless, and pure wireless telephony between Bristol and London. On that occasion, I had to introduce the Lord Mayor of Bristol and the Lord Mayor-elect of London. You will see that on that occasion, I had to introduce one gentleman who was over a hundred miles away, and another who was over a mile away, to an audience that was unseen, and to a speaker that could not be seen by his audience. Tonight, my duty is an equally pleasant one, that is, of introducing the Lord Mayor of Cardiff. On this occasion, I have the advantage of knowing the Lord Mayor of Cardiff, and have had some talk with him for the past hour. If it were not that he is anxious to get away to another function, I might tell you some of the Welsh stories he was telling me, and some of the Scotch stories I was telling him. Perhaps on a future occasion I shall have the pleasure of doing so. Before giving place to the Lord Mayor, I should like to make a few remarks. First, this is the first broadcasting station which has been erected since the company was formed. It is, therefore, the first opportunity that the Directorate has had of being represented at a formal opening, and it has given Lord Gainford and myself great pleasure to attend this evening. We wish the Welsh Broadcasting Station every success. We believe that the greatest boon will be to those living in the small villages and the distant Welsh hamlets, who are away from the madding crowd. And the last of the four speeches before a musical concert began was from the Lord Mayor of Cardiff. I am told that, thanks to this marvellous development of science, the wireless, I'm speaking to countless numbers of listeners in, not only in the immediate vicinity of Cardiff, but in far distant places, wherever the electrical waves now being transmitted through the ether will carry. To each and all I send my hearty greetings. I'm sure I'm voicing the feelings of you all when I say how grateful we are that the Cardiff Broadcasting Station is now ready in all respects to transmit a nightly service of wireless telephony. What a vista of possibilities it opened up in this wonderful discovery, by means of which you are now listening to me. Surely it marks the dawn of a new era, with what results who can tell. The standard of intellectual and artistic life will be raised, the highest form of culture will be taken into the homes of the poorest in the land, and the dwellers in the humblest homes will have the same opportunities as the denizens of Mayfair, of hearing the polished periods of a Rosebery, the music of a Paderowski, or the notes of a Melba or a Tetrazzini. For the full speeches as printed in the Western Mail, see our Facebook group of the British Broadcasting Century, when either myself or our newspaper detective Andrew Barker will post the full article for you. After the speeches, some music, including the first singer on the Welsh station, Mostyn Thomas, and it was the first Welsh language song to be broadcast. It was at 9.30pm, and it was Daffody Garagwen. Years later, Mostyn Thomas said... It was touch and go whether we were going to be ready in time. Engineers were stringing up microphones from the ceiling and testing equipment with seconds to go. I hardly had any time to practice, which made me extremely nervous, as in those days microphones weren't simple things to use. You had to stand close for deep and quiet notes and move away for louder, higher notes. And getting the right balance was more of an art than a science, but we simply had to be ready. The start time had been advertised in all the newspapers, so we were, by the skin of our teeth. Apart from that song, the rest of the broadcast was in English. The first speech in Welsh would come a fortnight later from Reverend Gwilym Davis. Then on St David's Day, March the 1st, there were a few lines of poetry in Welsh, followed immediately that night by a longer 15-minute talk in Welsh from a school inspector. Otherwise, those early broadcasts were almost entirely in English to begin with. You can still see a plaque commemorating that first Welsh broadcast at 19 Castle Street, Cardiff, which was then above a music shop. It's now a supermarket. So, station launched on February the 13th. 
February the 14th, the station director began work, Frederick Roberts. He also conducted the orchestra. He began work on February the 14th, 1923, and he ended work on February the 15th, 1923. Yes, 48 hours later, he was dismissed after being found drunk at his desk in his office. Can't imagine that Reith took that particularly well. London 2LO boss Rex Palmer then stepped in for a few weeks. They said they would send people from head office to help the provincial stations. The idea, I suppose, beginning that there is a certain London centricity to these things that London knows best. Then again, if Frederick Roberts was drunk at his desk, maybe on this occasion London did know best. BBC's Deputy Director of Programme, Cecil Lewis, we've heard lots of him on this podcast already, he took over from Rex Palmer, so Rex could go back to London once again. It was a merry-go-round of station directors at first, getting through four or five different directors in the first month alone. But... On March the 26th, they found a permanent solution. Six weeks in, the arrival of Major Arthur Corbett Smith. We'll have more about Major Arthur Corbett Smith, the frankly bizarre first major station director of Cardiff 5WA. That'll be on a future episode, because there's quite a tale to tell. For now, the last pieces from our exhibitionists, Bob Richardson at Surprise in London, but first, Lewis Pollard from Bradford's National Science and Media Museum. In the Switch On exhibition in Bradford, we have uh, on display John Logie Baird's original televisor apparatus, the thing that he was using as his proof of concept that television could be possible. And that's definitely one of my favourite objects in the collections that I manage. Uh, it has the puppet head on the end, Stooky Bill, that he was using um, as his test subject because the lights that he used to uh, shine on what he was trying to uh, broadcast were so bright that they would cause burns and potentially set your hair on fire. So he relied on ventriloquist dummies. And so that's why we have Stuckey there, probably the most important puppet in all of history. Um, but very, very creepy. So he's a bit of a polarizing um, influence in the exhibition. Some people are like, oh, yeah, it's an amazing object. Some people are like, oh, God, no, I don't want to look at that. So I have a fondness for him. Yeah, yeah. So what are the details then in terms of, um, is, it, is, it, is, it, is, it, is it free? Is that right? For donations? Is that the kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. The museum itself at Bradford is free and the exhibition is also free as well. Um, we ask people um, to either book online or at the desk outside the exhibition for a ticket. That's purely to help us be keeping track of how popular our exhibitions are and see what sort of things people like and what sort of things they we can do in the future. Like I say, there's this huge BBC collection. There's clearly a lot of, um, it's been a very popular exhibition. There's a lot more desire for these sorts of topics. So it'll help us in the future when we're deciding what should be the next big thing we're working on. So get along there. Um, and uh, of course, if anyone can't make it to Bradford or Manchester or London, online as well you've got the heritage collection we'll put the link in the show notes to both that and we'll put the link in the show notes to the podcast to the museum itself and the exhibition if you're doing links i would also recommend there is the uh, bbc 100 objects uh website that we've made it because we've worked with the bbc a lot on this whole program and that features quite a lot of our objects as well so the bbc history team have helped us with a lot of our stories and with some of the objects and the bbc research and development team in particular really key in the Manchester display because that also talks about the future of broadcasting and that is what they're working on you know the new devices and technologies that will change the face of broadcasting forever so they've been really fantastic thank you Lewis I was there in Bradford recently I saw the original rainbow puppets Bill and Ben and the play school toys and Daleks I loved it what a day out that was at Bradford's National Science and Media Museum I've also been to Bob Richardson's Kingdom of Cardboard at St Bride's 
just near Blackfriars, just above the north banks of the River Thames. Some of the stuff that's in the exhibition is quite large. I carried all sorts of stuff out through main reception. I was never once stopped by a BBC commissioner to say, where do you think you're going with that? Wow. Um, the only time I was ever stopped, I had taken my own personal PC into the building because one of our engineers was going to repair it for me. And when I tried to remove it, I was grabbed and taken for an, an interview um, you know, because I had a computer in my yeah. hand. Uh, they didn't like that much. It's handy that the one thing you'll stop for is something that is actually yours. That's quite good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what else have we got there? I mean, uh, you've got the um, the Blue Peter badge, haven't you? Tony Hart. Yeah, t- yes, the, the, an original badge. Um, there are some of the light box signs from Blankety Blank. Oh, yes. Um, a new set of six was made every week, and then they were thrown away. They were endlessly remade. Mm. Um, we have a studio lobby board. When you went into a television studio, there was a board that said, do not handle props or musical instruments. You must wear soft short soled shoes, all of that sort of stuff. And again, they were being renewed in the early 1990s with a horrible Perspex replacement that you wrote on with a China graph pencil. And I went into Studio 5 one Thursday morning to start doing preparation for Grandstand. And the man was taking it off the wall. So I rang, I, I actually said to him, can I have that? He said, no, you can't. It belongs to the BBC. Um, and I asked what was going to happen to it, and he said, I don't know, bring Bill Marshall in the mechanical workshop, which I did, and Bill Marshall I knew from the BBC bar, and I said, Bill, can I have that sign? And he said, "Um, yeah, get him to ring me, and it's yours if you want it. So I ended up with that. Uh, But there were two on every entrance to every studio, so Television Centre, there were 16 of them at least. Um, Don't know what happened to the other ones, but, you know, I managed to save one of them. I was in and out of Television Centre writing um, on a on a show as it was being slowly dismantled, and I could see signs being gradually removed. Yeah. I know for a fact there are a few producers and uh, actors who in their houses have on their bedroom doors different signs and Studio <laughs> One here and things like that. There, so at, at the bitter end, there was a sign just inside of reception, um, the end of um, 20, 2011, which said, "Any member of staff who is caught in the possession of a screwdriver will be dismissed instantly." because so much had vanished. And in fact, as you say, you walk around the building towards the end and there was just a bare metal frame on the wall where the signs used to be attached because people had just half-inched everything inside. I was about 10 years ahead of that because when the sports department took a long lease on Studio 5, it had to be refurbished. And the area that I worked in was the old BBC Puppet Theatre and there was lots of original signage. And during the refurbishment, that was all removed And when we moved in, that signage was propped up next to one of the equipment bays, Um, the sort of thing that said strictly no admittance to this studio. That's on display. Uh, Another one that said um, Studio 5 graphics area. And I I took them all home, again, with permission. Um, There was never any objection from anybody. And the the programme logos that you see in the exhibition for Football Focus, Match of the Day, uh, Sports Night, Grandstand, uh, Sport had a very good designer called Adrian Uwalaka, who, who I knew reasonably well. And one day when the sports night set was being refurbished, I said, may I have one of the old signs? Because they used to hang on the wall behind the presenter. And Adrian said, yes, of course, yeah, you know, take whatever you want. So I did. And then a few years later, when the match of the day set was being refurbished, Adrian came in and said, do you want any of this stuff before we sling it? So I said yes again, and, and of course I ended up with with lots of the sports department um, logos from the set. 
Well, it's it's a marvelous exhibition, and uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And and it's it's free entry, isn't it? It's one of the donations, I believe, yeah, for yeah. Some brides as well. Always worth always worth making a telephone call because the exhibition space is occasionally used as a conference room. If we have people in there holding a meeting, you, you can't easily get in. But just a telephone call to some bride. Um, the telephone numbers on the website, and they will tell you most of the time, especially this time of year. It's it's usually free, but always worth checking. Wonderful. So it's on Monday to Friday, 10 to 5, but do call ahead. A Kingdom of Cardboard, the golden age of BBC graphics, uh, created and rescued. Thank you for your skip diving over the decades, Bob Richardson. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. So that's Bradford and London. I also took in Manchester Science and Industry Museum while I was up in the Northwest. I saw their display on 2ZY Manchester, including, bless them, the one valve they have left from 2ZY a hundred years ago. So if you're near Manchester, that's worth a little look. It's a small exhibition. Uh, the bigger ones in Bradford. London Science Museum has one as well. Bob Richardson has his in St Brides. And if you're in Somerset Way, Watch It has its fabulous radio museum. Uh, also, Ben Grabham notes, uh, hi Ben, uh, Droitwich Spa Tourist Information and Heritage Museum has an excellent display on the Witchbold transmitter. If you search for Droitwich Heritage Centre, Droitwich Calling, you will find information on that transmitter there. You've also got across the country in Chelmsford, uh, Oaklands have a great display there in their museum. You've got a 3D scan that's hopefully on the way soon as well uh, of the original Rittle Hut. That should be online very soon. I'll be looking forward to getting to Chelmsford itself for the first broadcast, The Battle for the Beeb in 1922, my one-man show on the origin story of the BBC. I'm reliving, recreating the very first British broadcasting company broadcast and telling the story of everything from Marconi to Reith via Arthur Burroughs and Peter Eckersley. That hits uh, Chelmsford November the 11th at Christchurch URC. Do come, it's a massive venue. If you are in the Essex area, please make the pilgrimage to Chelmsford. Also Bristol and London, the final shows of the first broadcast. All the details of those tour dates, paulcarenza.com slash tour. And just because the tour ends, it doesn't mean it ends. No, the props go in the cupboard. It's available for touring. If you have a venue and want me to come and do it for you, I would be delighted to bring back the first broadcast. But for now, the tour goes up to November the 14th. So there are other events around the country as well that I'm sure are doing broadcasting history things. If you know any, drop us a line. Find us on Facebook or Twitter at BB Century, uh, or you can email me paul at paulcarenza.com and uh, we'll retweet it, we'll share, we'll tell everybody and shout about the marvellous exhibitions going on. So lots to see then, uh, lots more to bring you here on the British Broadcasting Century podcast as well. We'll be celebrating the centenary properly, 100 years and 100 minutes in a few episodes' time. You can be part of it. Send me a voice clip, paul at paulcarenza.com. Pick a landmark moment of broadcasting history beyond the podcast help this project grow as well it's a one-man operation so share if you enjoy it tell people you can join us on twitter and facebook at bb century the links are in the show notes and there's plenty more in the show notes as well besides on the social media very very soon i'll be sharing the book cover my new novel on the bbc origin story it's called auntie and uncles the bizarre birth of the bbc and hopefully you can pre-order that soon as well and i expect you to Thank you to Bob and Lewis for joining us on the podcast today. And thank you to our newspaper detective, Andrew Barker. Reviewers do support us on Patreon. James Morgan just has. Thank you, James. Uh, he has chipped in £5 a month, as our Patreon supporters do. And in return, I will record things and send them your way. Videos and readings and writings and things like that. So find us on patreon.com slash paulcarenza. And all that support keeps this show going. Stay subscribed. Stay subscribed. 
And next time, you will get the Shakespeare episode delivered straight into your podcast in-tray. It's a great chat with Dr. Andrea Smith on the first of The Bard on the Beeb. Here on... The British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza. The original music is by Will Farmer. We are nothing to do with the BBC. Any BBC content is used with kind permission. BBC copyright content reproduced courtesy of the British Broadcasting Corporation. All rights are reserved. Stay informed, educated and entertained. And do go to some of those exhibitions. Tell them I sent you. And join us next time for, forsooth, the first Shakespeare on the BBC. Here on the British Broadcasting Century.